This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Paul Yamazaki, you know, you've been a bookseller for over 50 years, but not just, you know, any kind of a bookseller. You know, for many of us, um, you are what we all aspire to be as booksellers. Uh, You read... You're one of the great readers. The scope and depth of what you read is kind of stunning. And you've taught me so much over the years in terms of new writers, new publishers, uh, new ways of approaching what I do in the store. But not only me, but you've also mentored and given guidance to literally generations of booksellers. And not only, you haven't been just doing that in any bookstore, you've been doing that in one of the greatest bookstores that this world has ever seen, City Lights. And you've also helped it because of who you are, weather, difficult times, probably some of the most difficult times, including now. And uh, you've allowed it to be relevant and be one of the most vital cultural institutions any, any place, anywhere. Um, but mostly, the reason why I wanted to talk to you today is because you're a good friend and I've missed you. Uh, and I've missed seeing you in person uh, at places that we would normally see each other, whether it be the Winter Institute or an ABA or, you know, any of book, book Expo, any of that stuff. But also knowing that last year was your 50, 50th year in the business, I think all of us should be celebrating that. And, you know, as I've told you, I only wish that it could be in person over a lot of martinis. <laughs> so, uh, so welcome, Paul, to The Literary Life. Thank you for being on this, and uh, thanks for engaging in this discussion with me. Well, Mitchell, it's my honor and pleasure. You know, just, it's, I think, thank you, one, for such a generous kind of introduction, but I think what's so important about what we do is the generosity of the book world, of the book business. You know, there's the last time we were actually able to see each other was at the memorial for Sonny Mehta. And I think that's a really good example of like how generous the book business is. There's not very many other endeavors in American life where a bookseller, a retailer could pick up the phone to the head of one of the most prestigious institutions in our business and then be welcome to do there, to come there. And I think that's kind of, you know, that relationship that we have with Sonny is, is, is representative of, of, in part of, of what we do. And then I think the other thing that is so important is the conversation that, we, that we've engaged in for decades. You know, you and I and our friends, you know, our other booksellers, publishers and editors, have all, each one of those conversations kind of opens up, turns another page on the book, and that, you know, turns into this expansive book that, you know, is seemingly endless. Ultimately, it's all about creating readers and bringing, you know, bringing books and bringing cultural experiences to people who would not know of them, but for 
the publisher or the bookseller. There's this kind of magical thing that happens, um, you know, that, that people underestimate. It's unlike any other, it's unlike any other thing that's sold in America. Do you know, it, it, it has to be done on this very personal level. And the beauty of it is that the people that we deal with and have dealt with all these years are some of the finest people that I know in my life. And when people ask me why I do what I do, it's so that I can have this conversation with you or so that I can be at a place with you and Rick and, um, and Richard Howarth from Square Books and we can just be hanging out talking about stuff. It's, it's kind of amazing. I mean, we've lived a very kind of charmed life, you know, those of us who've been slogging away in this world for so many years. 25 years ago, it looked like independent book selling was like kind of disappearing, that we'd possibly, our generation of booksellers would be the last generation of booksellers. And it's, but because of the efforts of, you know, what ABA has done and you in particular with like coming up with the idea of the Winter Institute was like kind of amazing. I mean, and I think Winter Institute is really one of the direct line to this new generation of, of booksellers that, Tell people what the Winter Institute is for those who might not know what it is. The Winter Institute is a gathering of now over 600 booksellers and then that happens every year. That is a, a convocation that's both educational in terms of the workshops provided, but it's also a platform for conversation for booksellers of all experiences from communities from all around the United States, as well as other parts of the world. and because of the success of this, publishers have really supported this and you know, they bring authors that they want booksellers to be talking about. But I think for me, one of the most central things about it is the opportunity, a national convocation for booksellers of all stripes, of all levels of experience, from all types of communities to engage with each other. When I was president of the ABA, I was president during the greatest decline in membership <laughs> that ever happened at ABA. It was, you know, we were, you know, it was right during the time that Amazon was taking hold, the discounters were taking hold, and we were losing booksellers by the score. And what's really been beautiful to watch, and at one point, you know, about 10 years ago, eight years ago, uh, you know, I would look, you know, at one time, both you and I and a lot of us, we were the kids in bookselling, Right. But there was a time there that I thought, oh, my God, you know, I mean, there's only going to be old people left as booksellers. And then when you see things at the Winter Institute and you see these young booksellers coming there, I mean, it's so heartening to know that what we do is going to live on into the future. Not to mention all these people who are opening bookstores now, younger people doing that, younger people of color opening bookstores. I think we're in another golden age period or about to begin. I think, in terms of what we do. I concur very strongly. And it's like when we were talking earlier about the Miami Book Fair, what the Book Fair has done from its inception is given us a vision of what the future could be in terms of its multidimensionality, in both in terms of class, in terms of race, in terms of cultural background. And so like, you know, just the presumption that, you know, that bookstores and readers came from only particular types of communities was exploded by Miami. When you're able to show if you provide the means, people will come, and they did. And it is yeah. kind of the most heartening things to see, to, to no, watch. And that shows a lot of your insight, Paul, because Miami, to a large extent, 
you know, was was um, stereotyped, you know, back in the in the eighties and seventies as a you know place where older people only lived and people were only going to read beach books and that sort of thing. And I remember when we opened in eighty two, I was confident because I saw what people were buying, and people were buying books as you know as um, as interesting, as sophisticated, as diverse as anywhere else. And then you layer on top of that, this diversity that is Miami, that was never really recognized because people didn't think of diversity in those days. And I, and you know, the book, I know I'm associated with the book fair, but it takes a village. And there were a lot of us who all understood that the book fair could be a big tent under which you know, the whole community could come because Miami was a very, very segmented community back then. So you've been at City Lights for 50 years. How did you end up there? I mean, you were young. You were like 21, right, when you started yeah, there? It's kind of a unusual story. I think I'm the only independent bookseller that I'm aware of that came straight from jail to bookseller. <laughs> so, and just to, to kind of like, fill that out a little bit. So I was very politically active just through my whole life, but I was particularly active in, in the 60s. I didn't know where or even had an idea of what the world was like, but I knew that I didn't want to be in the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> I was lucky, you know, just like I had no idea what San Francisco really represented and what was happening, what was all those cultural things were happening, but I was fortunate that I so did, did you go to San Francisco to go to college? Were you in college? Yeah, I was, I was accepted to San Francisco State by some miracle. You know, I was at the Stop the Draft demonstrations in, at the Oakland Induction Center. You know, I literally knew nothing. I mean, just I was an incredibly ignorant kid, even by the standards of that day. And But, but because there was so much cultural and political ferment, you know, it was almost impossible not to get involved. So... So as a kid in the Valley, with all the cultural stuff going on, because I was living a suburban life, and I was a kid in Miami, at the same Miami Beach. What were you reading in those days? Were you culturally, were you politically aware in the Valley growing up at the time? The short answer to that is no. I was reading like James Michener, if I was reading anything at all. Uh, I had a... My parents are left-wing Democrats. Our, our families are split between Goldwater Republicans and like uh, my parents who are like you call New Deal Democrats. Sure, sure. It's, uh, so it so, wasn't, so, you, so then you go to San Francisco State and all of a sudden the world, the world opens up for you there. It really opened up. It just, so I accepted a, you know, I'm walking through San Francisco as somebody who just kind of arrived here, just learning to explore the city, and I'm walking through uh, the waterfront in San Francisco, and a young person, a young lady, gave me a, a, a flyer, it was, and it was like a benefit for the Black Panther Party. I didn't have any idea who the Black Panther Party was, and so it was a benefit for the screening for Battle of Algiers, so I went to that just because for no particular reason. And so there I am standing in the lobby of this movie theater, and David Hilliard and Bobby Seale and like wow. George Murray, all who are different parts of the leadership of the Black Oak. What year was that, 69 or 70? Uh, that was the fall of 67. 
67, wow. Yeah. So I arrived in San Francisco in September of 67. Uh, the stop the draft week is, so just in a period of months, you know, all of a sudden I'm being exposed to all these things that I had no idea about. And then you were in college at the same time. Yeah. So what, how did that dovetail with what you started studying? And were you an English major? Is that something that? I was, I was undeclared. Uh, I was a terrible student all the way through and continued that trajectory <laughs> through college. And I was saved by, you know, the politics at that time because I would have been probably flunked out instead of kicked out. Got involved politically on the campus at San Francisco yeah, State? Yeah, so like, you know, just the San Francisco State strike was the longest student strike in American history. You know, we were the school that began, established the first uh, College of Ethnic Studies. Uh, wow. So it was a six-month strike. You know, I became very involved. One of the people who, one of my mentors, even was Francis Oka, who has worked at City Lights, even, even though Francis was just a couple years older than me. He was so... So he, he was, was a really mentor. One of the people who was really kind of, you know, much more mature than most people in their 20s. Francis was a mentor who worked at City Lights as yes. well. Yeah. Did he teach at San Francisco State? No, no, he was just, you know, so I was like 19, Francis was 22 or 23. He was and he was involved in the movement at that time. Yeah, no, he was, you know, both politically and at City Lights, he was kind of a mentor in that way. All right, so, so tell me about the jailing. When did that happen and how did that happen? I was arrested at the, stopped the draft week, spent some time in Santa Rita, there was a sit-in at San Francisco State in the spring before the strike. I was arrested at that, uh, at all these pending trials. And then during the strike, I was arrested a couple more times. And so all these things got morphed into like a couple trials. I was sentenced to six months in, in county jail. I ended up doing about 100, 120 days. I can't even wow. remember anymore. Um, which for a middle-class kid, spending that time in jail was really some of the most educational institutional things, you know, just it's, um, you learn about what's different and what's in common, you know, and so like, you know, just, and it, was, it was really kind of this amazing educational thing to, to be able to spend like, you know, really concentrated time because I was a so-called political prisoner. I was in isolation tier that the prison administration would call that sure. a, bad, uh, a bad behavior tier that we weren't allowed to go out into like, you know, most of the inmate population had so-called jobs, you know, whether it was in laundry or out in the agricultural fields, we actually, that San Francisco County jail, uh, it actually grew a lot of its own food. And wow. that wasn't actually a great thing to do. But, but yeah. So we were locked in the tier 24 seven. And there were a number of other political prisoners who were with you then? Uh, from state, no, but I was in, which was a good thing. I was in general population of like, you know, people who were in concerts. So, so I wasn't, you know, because what would have normally happened if there had been a lot of student protesters along with me that we would have kind of formed our own cluster and I wouldn't have right. been able to kind of interact with the population on the tier in a general way. And so I had to make my own way, which, and then it's uh, That's quite, that must've been quite a, quite a kind of socializing, sensitizing kind of an experience, I bet. It was, it was really kind of amazing. I was really fortunate in many respects. There was like older African-American gentlemen, and by then older, like, so I'm about 20 years old, and he probably was no more than 50. <laughs> so, right, right. 
because he seemed very ancient to me. But you know, he he and a couple other people kind of you know just kind of gave me this is the etiquette that you have to behave under. After six months, the parole people said, "Here's your way out," kind of thing. No, the the, the maximum sentence was six months, so I had two six months sentences to run concurrently. Um, I ended up serving about 100, 120 days of that. Oh, I see, that's right. I needed a place to say they would employ me to get out, get early release. And so Francis Oka went to the folks at City Lights, Lawrence Swirlingay, Shig Morale, and Bob McBride, who was the manager at that point, and explained my situation. So that hired me sight unseen, which I'm sure Lawrence over the years has kind of regretted something. <laughs> I doubt that. I get out of jail. And, you know, literally a week later, I'm working at City Lights. I didn't start in the bookstore. I started as the packer for uh, City Lights Publishing it was still doing its own distribution. So I worked up at 1562 Grant, you know, just up the street. And it's uh, packing up many copies of Howl and Reality Sandwiches and sending them out to the world. You're probably sending some of them to the Doubleday Bookshop that I that I would go to on Lincoln Road on Miami Beach is where I bought all of those Pocket City Lights books, which I loved as a teenager growing up on Miami Beach. Talk a little bit about, you know, for people who might not know, talk a little bit about, you know, Lawrence for a moment. I'm, I mean, you know, all booksellers know a huge amount about Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who is still alive at a hundred and... 201. 101 years old. And talk a little bit about what he did with City Lights beginning it and with the publishing house and what his philosophy was at that time. Yeah, I'd be very happy. Lawrence is really, I consider one of the most remarkable artists, poets, booksellers, publishers that that exists in American culture. And I think, you know, just it's, um, his vision is so broad and so encompassing. I really very much kind of, to this day, the decisions that I make as a bookseller, as a buyer are based off of the aesthetic that Lawrence and Shig put together, you know, just in it's, it's uh, People often associate Lawrence with the beat movement, which, and you know, and he's proud of that association, but he thinks it's too limiting. Lawrence really thinks of City Lights and himself as kind of in a broader level of engagement towards that river of hope and resistance that you know the artists have shown you know, throughout the, the centuries of industrialization and capitalism. And so he felt the beat was too narrow of a limitation, even though his respect and affection for, you know, people like Allen Ginsberg and, and Gregory Corso is profound and some of his deepest friendships, but it is, but he felt that was too limiting. He really was much more of an internationalist about that. He didn't want to limit it. To... Well, that's clear because, you know, you know, you think that with his association with the beats, if, if he wanted, if it was not more, uh, if it wasn't, if he didn't have a broad sense of what he could do as a publisher and a bookseller, he would have turned, you know, it would have become a tourist attraction as a beat, as a home for the beats. I mean, he could have, he could have really, he could have done something that would be very different. 
than yeah. what City Lights is today. I mean, the thing about City Lights has always been that it has, I think, galvanized a community of writers that constantly shifts and changes. So it was the beats in the 50s and 60s. But then because of people like you, as a book buyer, it became something else, right? It's all those things were built, I think, were part of the DNA of what like Lawrence and Shig had from the very beginnings, even though maybe they we couldn't have stated that that explicitly in 1953 when the store was founded. But as we're here, the person that should not go unmentioned is, is Nancy Peters. So without Nancy, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. City Lights would be this fond memory of something in the past, you know, that, that like, oh, wasn't that great when City Lights existed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But so Nancy came to San Francisco right around the same time I did, about a year and a half after I did. Um, she had been in Europe for many years and then had come back to the United States and was trained as a librarian. And, but fortunately, she came to San Francisco right at the time that Lawrence was looking to kind of expand publishing operations. And so she was originally hired as a so-called assistant, but you know, because she was, I mean, so profoundly smart and, and engaged in the world that she rapidly became one of the key people at City Lights. And it's, it's a, so Nancy was able to kind of make our transition successful, like, you know, to, as an organization that she was able to understand the values and intent that, you know, Lawrence and Shake had put into City Lights and that she shared, but it was also to kind of be able to kind of understand us as an organization, as a business, and that, that we could do both, that, you know, that, that to, to move forward, that we'd have to be, you know, actually start learning a little bit about big booksellers and publishers. And not just people who read and loved books. And yeah, so she was able to bring a kind of um, a kind of business sense to the whole thing as well. Yeah, without seeing any contradiction of having that sense of business and you know what to our values and and uh, and goals and ambitions were. And so, like you know, like what you've done, like what Richard's done, like you know, so many of our friends have been able to do that in their yeah. store. So when you came as a bookseller, you worked. You worked with the publishing house. When is it that you moved over to the bookstore? So I worked for publishing for two years and then I actually left City Lights and was working part-time at, you know, just, I would do fill-in shifts at the bookstore. And then after Shig left, and we can talk about that more, but there was, a, you know, the one tragic part of City Lights history is the falling out between Lawrence and Shig, you know, and it's... it's uh, talk about Shig a little bit more, because he's not someone I'm not familiar with, and talk a little bit more about who he was and all of that. Okay, Shigeyoshi Murao was uh, a Nisei, second-generation Japanese-American. Uh, Japanese-American, we call second-generation Issei, our were the immigrant generation. Nisei were the first American-born generation. Mm -hmm. So Shig uh, was incarcerated in American concentration camps during the Second World War. Uh, before the war ended, he was released. He was kind of, you know, a rebel in his own family. He comes out of the Seattle Japanese-American community. Uh, he comes to San Francisco, was one of the first people that 
Lawrence and Peter Martin hired, I think maybe initially. So Peter Martin was Lawrence's original partner. And it's, it's, uh, and Peter later goes on back to New York and, and uh, opens a New Yorker bookstore on the Upper West Side. But so Sig may have been at that time their only employee, but he's just, it's, he quickly became, particularly after Peter left, you know, the person who kind of shaped how City Lights operated in the world. And, and I still am inspired by how Shig was as a bookseller and just kind of his engagement with books and ideas. Uh, so, so he was the bookselling face of City Lights, really. Because as time went on, Lawrence's goal was always to have a City Lights publishing branch. Right. And so as after 55, that became Lawrence's major level of focus. And then it's, it's, um, we published Allen Ginsberg's Howell in 1956. The Howell trial takes place. Um, Shig, in fact, was the person who was arrested by the San Francisco police for selling Howell. Just Shig and Lawrence had a really disagreement that would have been worked out over time, I believe, you know, just, but it's that they're two individuals, Lawrence and Shig, who are both not given to like kind of verbally articulating their right. ideas. And so like a lot of things went unspoken and because they went unspoken, you know, they never got resolved. Yeah. And so Shig actually never set foot back in the store that he had so much. Oh, that's a shame. After Shig left, you know, you know, he was so close to so many people, like just for an example, Alan tried to be a bridge, Alan Ginsberg tried to be a bridge between Lawrence and Shig. He was never quite successful at that, but you know, because he was so fond of Shig, whenever Alan came to San Francisco, he stayed at Shig's apartment, which was just mm. a block and a half away from City Lights. So they're both in the same name, Lawrence and Shig are still in the same neighborhood. They used to go to the same coffee house and they hardly ever spoke again. And Shig never came back, except put back into the story, which is, I think, really the only unhappy thing about our history. And when did you make the transition from being an on the floor bookseller to a buyer? When did that happen? Well, that was just, that happened in the early 80s. Uh, City Lights was almost out of business. You know, just that whole period of transition after Shig left. He had a series of different managers, none of them really, like many of us in those days, knew what they were doing as far, um, as far as they were book people and they were part of the literary community, but you know, none of us knew anything about anything about actually running a bookstore. And so right. I'm working there part-time, 24 hours a week. I was a person who worked weekend nights. Uh, towards the end of that period, you know, I would do eight hour shifts by myself, you know, and just kind of in kind of a fairly wild and woolly atmosphere. Just it's, 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 uh, there were a lot of drugs on the streets in those days. And, and North Beach was a different kind of place, right, in those days, too. Yeah, it was transitioning out from being an immigrant community. City Lights is situated right in between the Italian immigrant community and the Chinese immigrant community. And so we're right at that intersection of that used to be the dividing line between those two. Just to give people out there an idea of just how iconic a place City Lights is, that, you know, a kid like myself growing up in Miami Beach, Florida, in the late 60s, early 70s, 
um, heard about this place, City Lights, and it became a place that I became obsessed with. You know, reading all the pocket City Lights books and, you know, reading about City Lights and um, knowing somewhat about the beats and all of that, but it was also a very political time. So I knew that there was, you know, the, we had just come out of the free speech movement in San Francisco, and I probably was watching you on trial a number of times or reading about you and what you were doing. And I was like 13, 14, 15, very politicized because of this, that, or the other. And there were bookstores in Miami that were chain bookstores, like the Doubleday Bookshop. That was my bookstore on Lincoln Road in Miami Beach that would have racks of your books that I would be reading and all of that. So I go to college, right? I go to college at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And I'm a freshman there in 1973. I had just turned 18 years old. And I discovered that my parents were gonna be in San Francisco. So I decided to get in my car, and, and it was over Thanksgiving, and meet them in San Francisco. And they were there with my little sister, who was eight years younger than I was. So she was about 10, right? So I walk in, this tr actually happened. I mean, maybe you were, you might have been on the floor as a part-timer, but it had to be 1973. And I was there, and I'm browsing, my first time in City Lights, and I'm just like overwhelmed by being there. And I'm browsing in the poetry section. And I look to them, my left, and there is Allen Ginsberg browsing in the poetry section. While I'm there, I'm going, no, this is impossible. It can't be. But apparently that night, he was giving a reading with Gregory Corso. Somewhere in North, where would that have been? It was like a club up the street from the bookshop. It's probably a club from Gazi over on Vallejo Street. Could that have been it? And yeah. he had a band, actually, that he was playing with at the time, Ginsberg did. And he and Corso gave dueling readings. Right. You, I don't know if they, if they did that more than once, but it was really wild. So I said to my parents and my eight-year-old, my 10-year-old sister, let's go. <laughs> so we actually went. And it was really, really interesting. We start this reading, and Ginsburg reads this long, long homoerotic poem, right? And I'm sitting with my parents and my 10-year-old sister. And I'm going, okay. Let's see what, let's see how everybody reacts to this. But then Corso, they were like do, doing these dueling poems. So Corso goes, okay, Alan, you read your fuck poem. I'm going to read mine. Mm -hmm. And he goes, when I was 12, I wanted to bite Sheila Finkelstein in the ass. <laughs> that was his poem. And I'm like going, I'm, I'm slinking further and further down in my seat <laughs> with my 10-year-old sister near me. And at the end, it was really cool. At the end, my parents and my 10-year-old sister stood up and gave them both standing ovations, as did the whole audience. It was that weekend that the New York Times had come in and, like, because Alan was in town and Gregory was... Do you remember that weekend? I mean, was I that... Do, I do remember that weekend because, like, oh. during that weekend, uh, there was a, a group photograph of the staff and... Lawrence and Alan and, and, and some of the writers associated with with uh, with City Lights that was taken in the base, basement and that photograph appeared in the New York Times Sunday Magazine about oh, a month cool. later. You know, as a bookstore, that happened to me, but it probably happened to hundreds of thousands of people over the course of the life of that bookstore, who were able to get 
the excitement and be turned on to something that they normally wouldn't have found. And I want to segue that into what you have done as a buyer there and how you transitioned it from what it was before to what it's become now with things like you have, if you still have it, I believe you do, um, you know, world, a world literature room, right? Yeah. And you probably had that before anyone else had that. Uh, and that is a direct influence of the buying that you, Paul, brought to the store. It's kind of, there again, comes out of conversation. Just it's a, that room of, of third world literature is, is, comes out of a direct conversation with uh, Dr. Richardson, who ran a, a bookstore called Marcus Books uh, that still exists today, uh, run by his family. But Dr. Richardson at that time, you know, just was the only bookstore that I know of in Northern California that was carrying the Heinemann uh, 20th century African literary classics. And so I would go in there and I was originally went in there because he also had biographies of jazz musicians that were published by independent publishing houses within the African-American community that weren't available any place else. And so it's just, and he also had a background as a printer. And so he had these posters of John Coltrane and Eric Dolphy, you know, which hung on my walls for years. But I, he educated me to like, you know, he was the person who put people like Bessie Head's novels, South African writer in, into my hands, to Dennis Brutus into my hands through those Heinemann classics. And it's, it's uh, and it was, that was the original impetus for that just because I went to Joe Wahlberg, who was the manager at that time, and I asked him, could we start stocking these books? The great fortune of being a bookseller is that we get to see how excited people are and just kind of by the choices that we make and kind of the environment that we create for books. And so it is, so it's different for writers and it's different for our friends in publishing where they don't get that positive reinforcement every day. Every day that we go into work, we can see like how excited people are by the things that we offer. And I think one of the great things about being independent booksellers is that we really, if there's one thing that we can characterize ourselves in general is that we're about the process of discovery. We carry a wide range of books, but the things that are so important are the things that people find for themselves just fact that we have that single copy or whether it's a stack or a single copy they find that that means so much to that individual reader and that's that's what kind of continues to recharge us i think as booksellers indie booksellers can change a life and a, and a and a mindset just simply by carrying a book that isn't carried anywhere else to some extent and not only that but the influence that you've had on writers writers who were customers of yours who discovered other people's work and understood that they could then have a voice. Any reader, any bookseller can ask this question. I think it's the heart of what I do as, as, as a buyer is when I find a book that I really like is asking, how did this book get into my hands? And that inevitably leads you back to the editor. You know what I mean? So Paul, tell, tell us, tell us who we should be reading now that we might not have been, that we might not be hearing about. Well, the book that just came out right just this week, The Prophet by Robert Jones, is right. tremendous. Uh, following in the tradition from Toni Morrison forward of, of 
basing the stories in during the slavery period in, in American history. But what Robert has done is wrote this amazingly moving novel where his characters are queer. And so it's 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 and it's an amazing evocative in both in terms of its historical context, but more importantly in it in its in its how each of these characters come alive to you and like kind of like you know where it was different and the same in terms of issues that we're still dealing with, you know, just it's, you know, one of the things that came from an editor who's been around for a long time that we really hadn't previously known each other, Sally Kim, who's been at the Putnam for many, many years, but, you know, just, she sent this book out there to many booksellers. And I think the response to that has been really amazing. It's, it's a, uh, this is a book that I'm reading right now, my broken language. It's coming out soon, uh, mm. coming from uh, One World. One World, it's there again, this is something, One World comes out of, in some ways, the vision that, you, that the Miami Book Fair has. You know, so this is Chris Jackson's imprint at Random House. Chris Jackson is arguably one of the most influential African-American editors and still, as we speak today, one of the far too few African-American editors in this business. But what's making Chris really interesting outside of kind of the success of people like publishing like Kendi and, and Garza is that he really understands kind of, you know, despite all our friendships and, and our kind of great affection for the business, that one of the things that we have not been great on is the slow progress towards including a greater number of people of color and a greater number of people from a wider class backgrounds. And there's obviously economic reasons why that's so, but in the, we have made, the progress that we've made on that has been very, very slow. There again, going back to the Wynn Institute, book selling has kind of has leaped ahead. I think in the last five years, in large part because of what ABA has done and what the Wynn Institute has done. So we're seeing, this rebirth of bookstores owned and run by people of color and in communities that hadn't seen bookstores in many, many years, if ever. So bookstores in Queens and upper Manhattan and the Southeast of Washington, DC. Um, you know, very significant what's happening in that realm. But I think we can also say at least, you know, there are, we're hearing many, many new voices coming out you know, from the publishing houses. So I hope they're beginning to wake up to the fact that there are other readers out there. And there are also, there have been some notable hires recently too of people, you know, trying to be brought into publishing, yeah. which is extremely important as well. And maybe, you know, hopefully this augurs well for, you know, hopefully publishing and bookselling is the canary in the coal mine and hopefully some significant cultural changes are afoot about being more inclusive in so many ways. Paul, what are you most excited about looking forward as, as a bookseller? What are, you looking, what are you most excited about in terms of you know, City Lights and, 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 and the fortunes of City Lights? What, what gives you hope? Well, I, as I look around, just with the books, the galleys stacking up, I think, we are in one of the most interesting literary times in the United States since the late 40s and early 50s. You know, we don't know who the next 
Philip Roth or Eudora Welty is, but what we do know is that there's such a great wealth of young writing talent out there coming from publishing houses, big and small, from across the United States. And so, like, you know, the, I think literature represents in a very tangible way what America can become. And, you know, and we're starting to see that also in the book selling community. And, the, and so looking at this new generation of booksellers, looking at this new generation of writers and publishers, and just, I think I'm as excited, despite all the challenges that we've all faced over this last 10 months, than I've ever been, you know, just for City Lights in particular, we've always focused on bringing people into the, into the doors of City Lights in San Francisco. And so we've never paid much attention to reaching out, making City Lights accessible in that curatorial way that we do in the store. And so and that's been a really tough lesson to learn. And, you know, we've kind of, we are now in the process of building a new website and you know, that will allow us to be able to reach out so to bring City Lights to people's doorstep and have so it can be a two-way street instead of a one-way street. So that's very exciting for me, how over the next period of time to learn how to translate what we do in the store into this digital realm and try to bring City Lights more directly into to, to readers' homes. One of the reasons why I have a bookshop is because of City Lights. I mean, when I was thinking about what I was going to do with my life, you know, I remembered my experience in bookstores and particularly my experience in City Lights and said, that's what I want to do. <laughs> you know, I want to do that. And um, I think you will continue to do that. And Paul, you've been, um, you've been just the kind of person who reflects the spirit um, of what City Lights represents um, to all of us. And I want to thank you on behalf of not only the entire publishing community, but the reading community and mostly the bookselling community for being, and I know this embarrasses the hell out of you, but, you know, being the kind of inspiration that you've been to so many of us. And you do it, you do it in such an elegant uh, way that I wish the whole world could emulate. But, you know, Paul, you, you are one of a kind and, to celebrate your 50 years, I, I hope we'll be talking 50 years from now about, about what, it's, what it's been like. Um, but mostly, I can't wait till we have another martini together. Maybe this fall, maybe, hopefully if we're lucky. Let's do something where we can all get together. Uh, let's make it a deal. You know, when we all get shots or when we all can travel, let's all do that. We will do that for sure. 